we're entering into the part of Second Thessalonians where the coming of the Lord is in view over the next few weeks. And thank the Lord we have that hope. And our trumpet this morning is a reminder of that day we look to when the trump of God will summons us and we will be taken home. This was the hope that was at the forefront of the, those who, in Paul's day, comprised the Thessalonian church. It was on their mind continually. They had a sincere hope the Lord would come from them at any time. We should as well. However, in spite of that, the Thessalonian church was enduring a lot of difficulty and a lot of suffering. And when we come to the second epistle, Thessalonians, written just a few brief months probably after the first letter, Paul was dealing with a church that is so consumed with the desire for the Lord to come, and yet at the same time, suffering. Now with that thought in mind, I want to share with you a story that comes from a publication called Bits and Pieces. It was published back in 1991. I assume this is a true story. A school system in a large city had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork during stays in the hospital. One day, a teacher who was assigned to the program received a routine call asking her to visit a particular child. She first talked to the child's regular teacher who said, we're studying nouns and adverbs in his class now. And I'd be grateful, she said, if you could help him understand them so he doesn't fall too far behind. The hospital teacher went to see the boy. But no one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in great pain. Upset at the sight of the boy, she stammered as she told him, I, I've been sent by the school to, to help you with nouns and adverbs. Well, when she left, she felt she, the, that she hadn't accomplished much. But the next day, she went back again. She came in the door. She was met by a nurse who said, What did you do to that boy? She felt she must have done something wrong, so she began to apologize, but the nurse said, no, no, no. You don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy. Ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back, responding to treatment. It's as though he has decided to live. No one quite knew what to make of it until a couple of weeks later, the boy himself explained how he had completely given up hope until that teacher had arrived. Then everything changed because he made one simple realization. He said they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? 
the Thessalonian church. As we come to chapter 1 and verse 5, needed to learn their nouns and adverbs, so to speak. If you go back to verse 4, where we ended up last week, it mentions their persecutions and tribulations that they were enduring. So yes, they were hoping that the Lord would come, that He would come soon, but yet they were suffering greatly. And what Paul needed them to understand was that this suffering was not somehow incompatible with their hope. And that in their suffering, there was still hope. And so Paul deals with the positive aspects of their pain in verses 5 to 12. Here we find hope for the hurting. The Thessalonian church was hurting. They were enduring heavy persecution and all sorts of problems. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 and following, following is still a message of hope today for those who are hurting. It might be for any number of reasons that you're discouraged. It might be physical pain. It might be emotional distress, disappointment. Whatever it is, maybe it's just the stress of living life in these days. But here is hope, God's hope, hope anytime you're hurting. Now, the subject obviously is connected to their suffering in verse 4, because verse 5 begins this way, which is, so there, there's a connection grammatically. And everything that he says in verses 5 through 12 hinges on verse 5 where we find the only one main verb in this whole section. Now, I apologize that your bulletin won't have the same language. So you can can scratch through the main point at the top and fill this in. And this is because I, I wrestled with this thing all week. And I would like to tell you that I suddenly came to a better understanding of how to communicate it, but I didn't. Instead, my wife asked me last night what I was preaching about, and I told her, and she said, oh, you mean you're trying to tell them there's hope for the hurting? And I said, why didn't I talk to you earlier in the week? I've been trying to to figure this out for all all week, and uh, she hears it one time and says it so well. Of course, we're talking about specific beneficial results of suffering that provide us with hope, any time we are suffering. So let's look at those four beneficial results. For herein is hope any time we are hurting. Number one, there is hope for us when we are hurting because there will be justice. There will be justice. Verse 5, which he says, remember, he's talking about the persecution and the tribulations which which they are enduring he says which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God 
manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And what he is simply saying to the Thessalonian church here is that justice is on the way. Judgment is coming. For all of those people who are doing harm, bringing pain and suffering to them in Thessalonica, judgment was on the horizon for them. God was not going to overlook their sin. He was not going to overlook their evil. So God's righteous judgment, he says, is coming. And that is what he says is the evidence, the evidence that God does judge righteously. So it is his coming, although it is postponed at the moment. It's not something that's going to happen in the, in the, the immediate. But look at it this way. Because God didn't bring the heavy hand of judgment, bam, down on those people that were persecuting his children. Because he did not judge them immediately and decidedly. That simply meant it was delayed. Because God is going to judge. And the fact that he had not judged them to this point is evidence that their judgment is coming. That's what he's saying. Now, what does that mean for us as believers? Well, first of all, I want you to note here, this coming that he talks about, this coming judgment will have some very particular aspects or characteristics we need to note. He says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So there's some connection between suffering and our place in the kingdom of God, and we'll come back to this. But let's move on to verse 6. He says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay. Now, here's what we need to understand, and this is what Paul says plainly here. This righteous judgment that is coming for evil people is a righteous thing. It is a just thing. It is a proper thing. Now, I know uh, we perhaps uh, have heard a lot of people question God's judgment and say, well, how could God judge and how could God do this? And look, God is a perfectly righteous God. He has an absolute sense of justice. And for him to look the other way when evil is perpetrated on someone by an evil person would make God evil. That's an impossibility. Because judgment is righteous. Since it is a righteous thing, he says, with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Notice how he says, look, uh, people bring you trouble, God's going to bring them an equal load of trouble. So God's judgment is always going to be an equalization of the scales of justice. God is not going to bring judgment of a greater nature on someone than they deserve. Never. It'll be equal. So, this being the case, just think about it. If God did not do this, if we did not have the assurance of God's judgment, 
we would be very frustrated. We would be very angry, resentful, because of those who harm us, persecute us, bring us trouble of one kind or another. Uh, if we did not understand, and now we're talking here about unbelievers who cause us trouble. He does not have believers in mind here at all. But uh, if, if, if God put us into a world where we had to suffer, or left us in a world, maybe I'd say it that way, where we are suffering because of unbelief and evil that is not only aimed at us, but ultimately aimed at God, then uh, how could we deal with that? Now, David ca- ca- caught this note and uh, gave us a very succinct answer in Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, David said, Do not fret because of evildoers. We're, we're pretty good at fretting, aren't we? We're, 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 uh, we are expert fretters. We call it, we call it worry. Or we call it stress, whatever you want to call it. Do not fret because of evildoers, says David. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. You know, sometimes we even get envious because we say, well, here this person over here, they, they lie, they cheat, they steal, and yet they seem to have it all. Well, the reason they have it all is because they, they lie, they cheat, and they steal. But God's going to remove it all too. And he's going to replace it with what they deserve in the long run. Verse 2, David continues and says, For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Now that's very picturesque language, but uh, it is speaking of God's judgment. So God's righteous judgment will come. Now secondly, notice in, re- in regard to this righteous judgment that it will become outwardly evident at a point in time. So for this, look again uh, at verse 7 now. And he says, after he repays, he said he's coming to repay, verse 6, with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord is revealed. When the Lord is revealed. Now, if you were here Wednesday night or caught us on live stream, you understand he's talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about his coming at the end of the tribulation period to destroy the enemies, his enemies at the battle of Armageddon to establish his kingdom on this earth. Now, the Thessalonian church was living thousands of years prior to that. We are living some amount of years prior to that. And how are we to understand that this judgment he's talking about here is connected with the second coming of Jesus Christ? By the way, I think we have a chart here somewhere. We flip forward to it. The second arrow on the right at the end of the tribulation period. That's what we're talking about. Now, what I began the service with is the rapture of the church, the two arrows on the left. In between is the tribulation period. And yet we are between the cross and the rapture. We are in that church age. We don't know how much longer it's going to be, but uh, we hope and pray that the Lord's coming will be soon. But this is the juncture in time that he's talking about. Now let's go back to where we are at. What he is saying is not that 
there will not be judgment before then, but that is when their judgment will be evident. Now, let's say an evil person dies today, before the Lord comes back and all these things happen. They are going to go to a place of suffering just like the rich man in Luke chapter 16. When he begged God to have the, the beggar come, Lazarus come in and dip, uh, you know, a drop of water on his tongue. So there'll be a, there will be a, a, a suffering, a judgment that takes place at death. But then there'll be a resurrection eventually way beyond the second coming of Jesus Christ over at the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers of all ages will be resurrected and then cast into the lake of fire in resurrected bodies, and that's that's the end point. And here's the second coming of Jesus in between. Now, the thing about it is, when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period, he's going to come back with the armies of heaven, we're told in Revelation chapter 19. And there's going to be that sword that comes out of his mouth, and that's picturesque, symbolic language. But he's going to speak the word, and all the armies of the world to follow the Antichrist are going to be destroyed. And that is the first time that literally on the face of the earth there is an observable demonstration of the righteous judgment of God. So what he is saying here is that the judgment that the evil people that are going to receive that, that are afflicting the Thessalonians, it's going to be seen by all. It's going to be open and evident when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Not only will the mighty angels come with him, but we also, who were caught up with the Lord at the rapture or uh, resurrected if we die before that, we will come with him too as part of that army. We're not coming to enter into battle, I don't think, because we won't need to, but uh, we'll be part of the, that uh, entourage that comes with him. So, his righteous judgment will become evident at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then one last thing I want to mention here, in regard to his righteous judgment, it will be everlasting. Not only will it be future when he's coming, not only will it be evident at the second coming, but it will be everlasting in scope. So let's look at it again now. Uh, at verse 7, I want to just follow into verse 8 where it says, in flaming fire. The flaming fire here is not the place of judgment here, but the, the appearance of the Lord in His coming. And He'll be a consuming fire, a, a, a bright and glorious uh, figure. And that's what He says there. Then He says this, here's what He's going to do when He comes. Taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. How long is that, by the way? That's forever. Not, these evil people are not going to be consumed and burned up and, and annihilated. They're going to continue to exist and, and live in, during a time of eternity, during the eternity, and at the same time, they're going to endure the punishment of God throughout those years, although they never end. So, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So not only will there be punishment uh, and, and that, that God will mete out to them for their evil, but part of that punishment will be separation 
and isolation from God and all that is good and all that is righteous. Now, there's a lot of evil people in this world today that that enjoy the blessings of God's creation and God's righteousness and, and the impact of the Holy Spirit here holding back evil and the, the work of God's people as the salt of the earth. They, they, we have brought, God has brought through us and through His own sovereign work, a lot of blessing that ensues to everybody, good and evil. And, you know, this, this world is not so bad because of the presence of God. Can you imagine living where there is no presence of God? Everything is just evil, corrupt, awful, suffering, pain, agony, nothing else. So it will be an everlasting punishment. Now let's, let's move on now from this fact of justice because this justice indicates when you're suffering, especially if somebody has brought it upon you, it indicates that, well, there's hope because God has promised it just hadn't happened yet. Number two, there is hope for the hurting because our character will be refined by suffering. Our character will be refined by suffering. So let's go back again to verse four. At the end of verse four, he talks about all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now, persecutions we've talked about so far. Persecution is brought upon God's people by evil people, by those who are following Satan and doing his work. Now, I don't think I need to remind all of us that we're hardly a step away from persecution in this country today. I mean, we're already there in some regards. Uh, there's going to come a day when if you go to church, you're going to be targeted. If you if you profess Christ, you may well be targeted. Violence may be perpetrated on us. It's, it's not at all. All you got to do is just look at the news. You understand this. It's not at all hard to conceive of. So persecution is brought about by evil. Tribulations, though, that can be anything. See, tribulation includes just problems that we have because we're human beings and because we're fallen creatures and because we get sick and because we make wrong choices and because we can't get along with each other. Tribulation is the broad umbrella, and underneath of that broad umbrella of tribulation, there's this one aspect, persecution, but we suffer from a lot of other things as well. Why does God allow those things? Because He wants to refine our character. He knows that we will grow in a Christ-likeness because of having to deal with our tribulations. For the most part, you and I have only had to deal with tribulation. We have not had to deal with persecution. Oh, I know, I could, I could name you a few people that I know of as lost jobs probably because of their, their faith. Uh, that certainly fall under persecution, but I don't know a lot of people that fall into that category. Most of us have not suffered from persecution, but we, we've had a lot of tribulation. Now, tribulation is that which God al- allows for our development. So let's again, let's, let's take up on this matter of tribulation, move into verse 5. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That's primarily dealing with the persecution. Then he says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, we understand he's not talking about 
salvation. He's not talking about eternal life. We're never worthy of our standing of in grace. We are never good enough to get to heaven. Only by the goodness of God, the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, the payment that he made for us that covered our sins, can we be part of the kingdom of God. But once we are part of the kingdom of God, once we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, God wants us to be the best Christians we can be. He wants us to truly experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. And we all are a new creation, but we don't always yield to the Spirit's work. So to be counted worthy here is in the Greek tense, which is roughly equivalent to the English past tense. But in the Greek, it always indicates something that happens, pow, at one point in time. Right there. It's over. Done. That's what he's talking about. Right there. When are we going to be counted worthy? At the judgment seat of Christ, when we will be examined and rewarded based on our service, our faithfulness, and our work for Christ. You read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's not mentioned here other than Paul simply refers to it. Some will be counted worthy of their, in their faithfulness and they will be rewarded. Some will be uh, not rewarded, uh, no doubt. Now, if you drop down to verse 11, we'll come back to this, but in verse 11 he says, Therefore we also pray always for you that God would count you worthy. So uh, again, he emphasized it twice. Same word, by the way, in the Greek uh, as it is in the English. That God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill his good pleasure of his goodness and the works of faith with power. The works of your faith through his power. So God wants us to develop our faith to be in the center of his will, to fulfill his calling, and all of that makes us worthy of reward. If we do not do those things, if we are disobedient, if we are backslidden for a long time and we, we fail to, to allow God to work his work in us, we will not be counted worthy in the sense that he's going to reward us. But we're going to be still recipients of his grace. So, our character and the refinement of our character is always part of what God is allowing when he allows us to suffer. There is suffering to the extent that we will be judged worthy. And the means of that process will be God working in us and through us the power of the Spirit. Let's move on to number three. The third reason that there is hope for the hurting has to do with our rest. We will have rest. We will have rest. Now let's just back up a little bit. Again, uh, verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Verse 6, since... It is the righteous thing for God to repay tribulation, uh, with tribulation, those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. Rest with us. What does he mean? Well, the word here translated rest is a word which means relief. 
and relief from suffering is what he's talking about. Yeah, you're suffering now. And God isn't doing anything to maybe remove that suffering at present. And he's actually using it to refine your character. But there will come a time when you will have relief from suffering. There'll be no more death, no more pain, no more crying. All those things he mentions over in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. There will be complete relief from all the pain, all the suffering, all the stress, all the agony, all the worry, all the affliction that this life, all the tribulation, all the persecution that this life can throw at us. We will have release and rest for eternity. Just like judgment is eternal and everlasting, so relief is eternal and everlasting. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are going to have that rest. That brings us now to number four. By the way, that eventual rest for us will take place at different times. If you die before the rapture, the two middle errors, uh, you immediately enter into the rest of God. And then at the rapture, you'll be resurrected, so you'll live eternally in a resurrected body. Of course, if you live into the rapture, you, you avoid the death, but you're going to be changed. There will be believers during the tribulation period who will be resurrected later on. Uh, so God's rest for God's people begin at different points in time, but they're all, uh, in every case, experiencing what will be at that point eternal rest. All right, number four. There is hope for the hurting because there will be justice, because our character will be refined, because we'll have rest, but also we will experience glorification with Christ. We will experience glorification with Christ. Now, bear with me for a minute. Let's look at the scripture first. Don't let your minds go too far here. We go back to verse 9 where he was talking about judgment. And there he said, uh, The evil people will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So he again is saying the glory of God, by the way, the glory of God existed in the Old Testament and was observed as uh, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. Uh, the glory of God was manifest on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, but you know, God is always a God of glory. But he will be in particular glorified when Jesus comes at the end of that tribulation period because a whole world will see him coming in the clouds. That's Matthew 24, verse 30, 31, I think it is. And every eye shall see him. And we've already noted earlier that he will come in the flaming fire. It'll be, his glory will be manifest to all. His victory over the armies of the world will be complete. And his glory will be evident to everybody. Believers and unbelievers that are alive on earth at that point. 
So he begins there. When he comes in that day, the day of his revealing, to be glorified, it says, in his saints. Now, the Greek preposition translated in here has various meanings in the original. And uh, the, the Hebrew, excuse me, the, uh, the Greek preposition can mean in, like inside of something, or in the sphere or the, the, you know, the influence of something. It can also mean with or by. Here I suggest to you it means by. To be glorified by his saints. Well, because we're going to be praising him and worshiping him and ascribing to him the glory that is his. Uh, to be glorified by his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Now, that's the believing world, the, the believers in the world. There won't be a whole lot of them probably at that point because many of them will be martyred. But there will be some here when he comes back and they'll enter into that millennium. They're the only ones that will enter into the millennium as mortal human beings. All unbelievers will be prohibited. Now, let's go on. He says in verse 11, Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy. We already talked about that. Of his calling, fulfill his good pleasure, and so on. Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean for us eventually being there in eternity with God, with Jesus Christ, to be glorified in Him and He in us. Well, probably it'd be better to understand this in here also is by. We are going to be glorified, or we're going to glorify Him and He's going to glorify us. It's the agent by, glorified by His saints and we're glorified by God. There's a reciprocal glorification here. Now, that means it'll be a, a mutual glory in heaven. Now, we will never in any way even come close to having the same glory as God, obviously. He is the glorious one, but he will be glorified in us and we in him. What is he talking about? Well, of course, it will be based on God's judgment of our life and our rewards and all that will have something to do with it. And it'll be dependent upon God's work in our life and fulfilling of his calling, like it says here and so on. But I want to give you an illustration that I think will help us all understand what he's saying. This is a trophy case, display of trophies. Now, in a very real sense, I think, in heaven, we are going to be God's trophy case. We are going to be trophies of His grace. Now, <clears throat> some of you probably have a trophy or two. If you've won, acquired, earned in some way. The first thing about a trophy is you've got to be worthy of it. Okay? What, what does the, do the rewarded saints over in the book of Revelation do with their crowns? They throw them at the feet of Christ. They glorify Him with it. See, it's, it's a reciprocal relationship. He gives the crown, they give the crown back. Now, but again, let's, let's just think about this in terms of a trophy. You have to, to win something. You have to be first place in some event, some sports activity, something. 
And I'm not talking about participation trophies here either. <laughs> a trophy is, is, is earned if a, if a team wins a championship. Like if someone just won the NBA championship, I don't know, I didn't pay any attention to it. I think it was LA maybe. And they got a team trophy. And I'm sure all the individual players got some something. Uh, but anyway, that trophy has to be acquired for the right reasons. Now, number two, when you acquire your trophy, you're going to put it on display. Probably. I found a few old trophies I got from high school in my attic. And long since not been displayed. <laughs> we probably all got a few of those laying around, right? But... Uh, uh, if someone's really, you know, thankful for their accomplishment, they'll probably put that trophy on display. And if they put it on display, they're going to put it in a prominent place, and they're going to get a good light on it, and they're going to keep it shined up and looking good instead of getting all tarnished. And if they do that to their trophy... And someone comes to visit them, they walk in, they say, oh wow, it's a wonderful trophy. What, what, what did you get that for? And they say, well, I did such and such or whatever. And I, who's getting the glory there? It's going back to the owner of the trophy. It's coming from the trophy back. So look at it this way. In heaven, our existence there means, number one, God is glorified because he purchased us with his blood. And because we are his purchased possession, he puts us on display. He puts us in a good place. He puts us in the new Jerusalem. It's lit by the glory of God. And he gives us everything to make us perfect. Like him. He keeps us all shined up. And then what do we do? See, he's giving glory to us. Reward a place to live, a mansion to live in, as the Scriptures calls it, uh, a, a, an existence without pain or suffering, all that He gives us. And we turn around and we say, but the, it's the glory of God. He's to be glorified because He did it, not us. It's a reciprocal relationship. And our faithfulness in serving Him is going to determine how much we can be glorified in Him and in, in us in that day. Now, these are then the things that we can look to to find hope when we are hurting. These are worth remembering. I would suggest you maybe just jot down four words. Justice, refinement, rest, and glorification. And the next time that you're fretting, worrying, dismayed by the, what you face in this world and what you see and what's happening, remember what David said, do not fret because of evil doers. 